it's all about understanding what causes risk and how to mitigate it so that our products that are installed within a physical space can proactively mitigate risk and keep people safe. So we can actually understand like the precise moment that people are likely to get sick and do something about it in real time. And the outcome will be healthier humans, more productivity and improving the quality of life for people in our natural habitat indoor spaces. And really with any type of an organization, whether it's a business or a school or anything in between, there's a material ROI to keeping people healthy. Schools get their funding from students attending school. And one of the school districts we're working with right now missed out on over $75 million worth of funding due to sick days and student absenteeism. What if I told you that a technology that's been around since the 1910s is the secret sauce to a company that was founded in 2020 and has completely exploded in the year since. And when I say exploded, I mean scaling from $0 to over $25 million in less than a year. That's the story of R0 Systems. And it's a great example of how in today's world, spotting an opportunity, moving fast, and being able to solve problems in real time is what separates the winners from the losers in the world of business. Whether you're in CPG, retail, healthcare, or some combination of multiple verticals, the biggest problem a company has is the ability to sustainably scale. But R0 Systems is showing just how to do it well. And that's not the only solution the company is bringing to the table. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, I sat down with Grant Morgan, the co-founder and CEO of R0 Systems. And he told me all about the wild ride the company has been on since its founding in spring of 2020. R0 is a biosafety technology company that, thanks to its innovative products, helps customers create safer spaces for their patients, employees, students, and really anyone entering their indoor spaces. It was created for the same reason as any other company, to solve a problem. The difference though, was that Grant and his team were able to first ramp up production at a time when few others could, and second, bring something critical to the very specific needs of the market that was already proven to be effective, but wasn't very accessible to many people. Turns out that's the key to growing quickly, effectiveness and accessibility all at once. Oh, and maybe a few other things as well. Do you want to know what they are? Find out in this episode. Plus, listen closely to hear my epic UV product ideas that I know Grant is eager to add to his product roadmap and some of the funniest product requests he's received to date. Enjoy. quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Hey, 
everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postal, CEO at Mission.org. Today on the show, we have Grant Morgan, who currently serves as a co-founder and CEO at R0 Systems. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So today, it feels like a lot of the conversation is going to be all around scale with your company. So I'd love for you just to start with, what is R0 Systems and when was it founded? Absolutely. So R0 Systems is a biosafety technology company, and we exist to help our customers create safer spaces uh, for their employees, guests, patrons to be in where they can physically be safer, uh, but also feel safer as well. And uh, we were founded in April of 2020. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, very squarely as a pandemic response when my co-founders and I were witnessing sort of the, the loss of human lives and the, uh, the economic devastation that was happening on a truly global scale. And, and we all felt compelled to, to jump in and do something to help. Cool. So what problem did you all see? And then how did that you know, look like going from idea to actually having a product? One of the things we realized was that this is a moment in time where everything is going to change. And we started drawing parallels to some of the other historic events that, that we were familiar with or, or that we could uh, study. And um, one of them was 9-11 out of 9-11 came basically the entire Homeland Security apparatus for the United States. So, you know, we hired 14,000 TSA agents. You still can't take your shoes or a water bottle through security. We founded the Department of Homeland Security. And, and there were many private companies that, that were founded to support this security apparatus. So think like the Palantirs of the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we thought that, you know, there would be similar societal and infrastructural change that comes out of the coronavirus but that it would be uh, focused around uh, human health and productivity. And uh, so, you know, one of the hypotheses that we had was, um, you know, there would be a lot of lingering sort of psychological scar tissue built up in the eye and the minds of the public. And that's very much proving true. And, and uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier, not only people are, are going to want to physically be safer, um, but they're going to want to feel safer as well. And so as we started digging in and studying really like how, do we do disinfection? How do we do uh, infection prevention in public spaces right now or historically? And we had a couple of pretty stark realizations that presented some opportunity for us uh, to bring technology and innovation to this industry. But one of the observations is, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think something everyone's familiar with is when you get an Amazon package or you bring your groceries home, everyone was wiping everything down uh, yeah. with chemicals. And we thought that was crazy. And, and one of the observations was that, you know, we are still using the same chemicals today to fight COVID that we used to fight the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. You know, this industry has been dominated by essentially, you know, 100 plus year old commodity chemical manufacturers. Um, there's some great companies, but, but they don't have uh, technology and innovation in their DNA. And um, so we, we realized that there's an opportunity to inject what we know, um, being technologists and kind of in, in the heart of Silicon Valley for the last couple of decades, you know, with modern AI and data science um, and machine learning models, with IoT connected hardware, and then also with software, uh, modern software experiences that, that users are, are used to. And um, if you think about disinfection, historically, it's, it's been this sort of invisible process. And, you know, somebody comes in generally at night when nobody's around, they wipe down a bunch of tables and, and, uh, and objects, and then they sign their name on a clipboard and a piece mm -hmm. of paper. And uh, so not only does it happen when nobody's there, but there's no, you know, real execution inspection. You don't really know how good of a job they did or, or what they did. We decided that, you know, that would be 
one of the opportunities to help people feel safer is, is obviate like what actually happened and back it with data. So, you know, that was another observation. Um, the third observation we had that was, that was uh, perhaps the most powerful is that chemical disinfection, the way we've done it in the past, uh, it, it's, it doesn't work. The evidence is pretty clear if you look at it. So, you know, before COVID, about 40 million Americans got the flu every year. And somehow we just accepted that that's normal. You, you look at like MRSA or staph infections, they kill more people every year than emphysema, Parkinson's, AIDS and murder combined. I was just thinking about that with gyms. Like when you're like, oh, you don't even know if someone actually cleaned it or not. I always think about that every time I walk into the gym. I'm like, was it clean last night or not? Exactly. So as humans, we're, we're actually a, an indoor species. You know, we spend 90 plus percent of our lives indoors. And the implication is that the uh, indoor spaces where we do spend our time has it have a huge impact on our overall health. And I think that that's one of the um, sort of realizations that we have as, as a society have had. And I think it's opened the door to having conversations about, well, how do we actually keep people safe in these indoor environments? What are the types of things we can do? And, and how do we build a better, safer normal uh, instead of going back to normal, uh, quote unquote? Um, how, do we, how do we innovate? How do we actually get better coming out of this pandemic? And so um, those things combined with the fact that, you know, manual disinfection historically has been just that very manual and labor intensive. Humans are imperfect. Uh, in fact, Clorox ironically published a study showing that uh, over 50% of surfaces in hospitals even um, are missed by manual disinfection. Um, and then you pile on top of that, that chemicals are harmful for humans and harmful uh, to the environment as well. And so all of those things, you know, we saw as a huge opportunity to modernize this industry and manage it with the same level of sophistication and technology that we've become accustomed to in virtually every other industry. Cool. Yeah. When thinking about hospitals, I mean, that's where like, people go in and get actually infections and, you know, get sick from going into hospitals, which maybe that's a rumor, but I feel like it has to be true. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's entirely true. And, and in fact, um, there's this concept of hospital acquired infections or HAIs, um, and they'll cost uh, anywhere from like 15 to $30,000 per occurrence. And they're a 35 to $40 billion a year problem in the United States. Wow. Um, so they're actually, HAIs are actually the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, believe it or not. So people think hospitals are clean or perceive them as clean. Um, I think generally speaking, they are, but, but they also have the toughest challenge to keep people from getting sick from each other, keep the frontline workers and the doctors and the surgeons safe as well. But if you think about a hospital, it's essentially a communal gathering place for the sick. Mm -hmm. And, um, Although they have issues with HAIs, um, or at least most of them do, um, they, they also have the best technologies that exist. They need the best tools uh, to fight the toughest problems. And um, that's actually when we started studying hospitals and specifically the best in breed hospitals that do the best at preventing infections. Um, that's actually where we came across UVC light and the idea for UVC light. And you know, this technology is more than 100 years old. In fact, the 1903 Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to Niels Finson for the use of UVC to treat lupus. Um, and it's been used in wastewater treatment plants since the 1910s. It's been used in air and surface disinfection applications since the 20s and 30s. And today it's the gold standard in the best of breed hospitals. And so, you know, one of the, one of the things we wanted to do early on in the pandemic and early on in our company's life was take this, this tried and true technology that has a mountain of scientific evidence proving its efficacy and adapt it for commercial spaces and, and public spaces and really kind of democratize access to this technology that we know works. 
So what does the UVC light like equipment look like? Like if I were to go into a hospital or doctor's office, like what does it look like and what's the average cost of it? The average UVC equipment is you can think of it as like a basically six foot, five to six foot tall um, kind of tower with a bunch of uh, light bulbs that look very much like a fluorescent light bulb that you would have in your ceiling. Mm-hmm. And it's on wheels and you can push it into a room, you plug it into the wall, set a timer and you hit go and um, it will disinfect that entire room and really anything the light touches. One of the interesting observations we had uh, when starting this business and, and actually as an aside, the original idea for the business was actually a service business. So we, you know, the idea was, you know, Uber for disinfection, so to speak. And, and you're going to so bring we, them to the clients. Exactly. And, you know, we thought we were going to spin up a network of independently contracted technicians, equip them with differentiated disinfection equipment and go perform a service above and beyond what a normal janitorial custodial staff would typically do. And we landed on UVC Light. We're like, this is the technology. It's elegant. It's chemical free. It's efficient. And we know it works. And we started looking at the, the hospital grade uh, UVC devices, and they were anywhere from like sixty to one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a piece. And so wow. we, we actually thought our idea was dead in the water at that point. But um, you know, I'm looking at these things as a mechanical engineer and, and thinking to myself, like, this is a light bulb on wheels with a timer. Like, there's no way that it costs that much to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of reverse engineered it and figured out the components that would go into making one of these devices, and figured out that. You know, we could we could actually make a device with hospital grade efficacy um, and sell it for a a price that's actually amenable to and, and affordable to uh, organizations of all shapes and sizes. And so that's kind of where you know I called up one of my co-founders, Ben, and I was like, "You're going to think I'm crazy, but we're building lights." And he's like, "All right, you are crazy, but I'm in." And so that and then we were off to the races. Oh, I love that. So what were you and Ben doing, you know, before you started the company? Like, did you guys have full-time jobs or were you just kind of, you know, bounced around from different startup ideas? So I'm an entrepreneur. Um, so I, I actually started my career in, in healthcare, um, specifically medical device and pharmaceutical manufacturing. Um, but uh, after a stint at a, a couple of companies, I jumped ship and, and got into tech. You know, R0 is actually my third company. Um, and I left my second one to come uh, start R0, which was very, very tough decision. We you know, had just launched our product six months ago. We were growing hand over fist at, at, you know, as fast as we could you know, keep scaling the servers. You know, R0 was something that you know, I, I felt extremely compelled to do because of the altruism and the ability to actually make a meaningful change during, uh, during this you know, hopefully once in a lifetime you know, tragic event. So it was a tough decision. I'm still got my foot in the door and helping however I can, but, um, but working full-time on R0. Ben Boyer was uh, a venture capitalist for more than 20 years. And he actually led the Series B of my, my first company and sat on our board. He was always someone I looked up to, respected, wanted to figure out how to work with in the future, but never thought it would be in this capacity. I always thought it would be him investing in something that I was doing. But um, you know, for, for this one, he, he jumped ship and the mission was so important that you know, he decided to stay on the boards that he was still on, but, uh, but jump in and, and uh, dedicate his time and energy to, to us at R0. Um, my third co-founder, Eli, was, uh, you know, is an entrepreneur as well. And so he, he uh, had started a, a couple of companies, most recently one called EcoFlow, which makes large, you know, high-capacity lithium-ion battery packs. And he left that um, a couple months before coming to R0. Um, but I also met him at my first company 
as well. So he was at DJI, the drone company running yep. international DD. I have their drones. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, yeah. and, and my, my first company was a, a on-demand repair or technical services company. And so we conceptualized like a drone repair program. Um, I don't know, like eight years ago, maybe seven years ago. And um, it never materialized, but we became fast friends. And, and uh, he's one of those people that's truly special. And, and you know, you, you try to find ways to work together in the future. And, yep. and uh, here we are. That's great. So do you still have one product or do you have more than one now at the company? Yeah. So we have two that are like live and publicly launched. We have two more that we're launching in the next three weeks. So, you know, four products in roughly uh, 16, 17 months uh, is what we're bringing to market. But, you know, our first product was kind of a wedge in and, uh, and, and was, uh, you know, will be the flagship product uh, for sure. Was it kind of the repurposing or rebuilding that light structure? Was that your first product? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's arc. That's the yeah. tall, six foot tall um, disinfection, uh, UVC disinfection tower. Okay. Fundamentally, the way we think about our product suite is, you know, we attack the different vectors of transmission for pathogen spread. So that's air surfaces and then human to human. And so all of our products treat one or more of those vectors uh, of transmission. We are building out our product suite to uh, to adapt for different use cases, different form factors, um, to be able to walk into any physical space and outfit it with um, installed products, with mobile products, but a holistic suite of products that uh, speak to each other via IoT connectivity that uh, sense collect data about how the space is used. For example, the you know how the traffic flows within a space, where people congregate, where the population density is high, and therefore where the risk is high. Our um, software under the hood will actually ingest all of that data that our products are collecting and generating, and it will actually quantify risk. And um, based on that risk that we quantify, it will send signals to the products that are installed in a given space and mitigate that risk automatically. Um, wow. So you know, customers don't have to do anything. We, we built this sort of continuous automated disinfection ecosystem with our products. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. So I want to dig more into the model. Like, how did you guys think about, you know, building that and figuring out what is actually going to transmit diseases and how to actually build something that would show you here's the risk per room? Like, let's go behind the scenes on that because that's super intriguing. Yeah, so I'll Tarantino this a little bit. We'll start with the end state and I'll kind of come back and explain. It'll give a little context, but... What we want to do, our mission as a company really is, is to reduce the spread of infectious disease. And, and what that means in most common spaces is reduce sick days. Um, it turns out sick days are a massive, massive problem. Um, you know, we were talking before the show, 40 million Americans get the flu every year. Somehow we just accepted that that's normal. 
And that's not to mention all the other common pathogens like seasonal flu, common cold, E. coli, norovirus or stomach flu, uh, MRSA or staph, all of these different pathogens that are endemic to our customer spaces. And uh, the CDC estimates that sick days cost the U.S. economy about $600 billion a year. So there's a real material ROI to any kind of organization to being able to reduce sick days uh, and keep humans healthier. Um, and by virtue of doing that, increase the productivity of your workforce and your most expensive assets as a company or an organization and, um, and just keep people healthier. I think that that's something everyone can get behind. But I mentioned earlier in the interview, disinfection has been this historically invisible process. And, and I think it's been easy to pass the buck and say like, okay, I got sick, but like, you know, not at school or, or not at work. It's, you know, your kid brought that home from school or it's easy to kind of point the finger and, and pass the blame. But um, we know how diseases are spread. It's epidemiology and physics. And because there are two entire fields of study around this, um, you can mathematically model uh, the spread of disease. And so there are things that will increase your risk. Um, so things like people not wearing masks, uh, lots of people together in a small confined area, breathing for long periods of time, for example, um, people touching high risk surfaces and things like that. Um, but there are also things that reduce the risk. So that's things like using you know, HEPA filtration or disinfection for air purification. Um, that's things like cleaning and disinfecting, social distancing, wearing masks, all of those different things. And so essentially what we decided is that we're going to go try to model that and build a predictive model of risk so that we can walk into any physical space, take some basic inputs uh, or, or uh, understand the characteristics of that room. How big is it? You know, what's the ceiling height? How many people are typically in the room and for how long? Are they wearing masks or not? Where are they located? Um, and if we can collect um, some basic inputs like that about a space, then um, we can run it through a machine learning model that's built on top of a statistical uh, infection model. And it's got some computational fluid dynamics uh, layered in to model airflow and things like that. Um, but we can actually, with a very reasonable degree of certainty, predict the risk of one or more people in that space getting infected under certain conditions. And so, you know, that's one of the things, one of the many things we're working on right now and, you know, our plan is to conduct uh, a number of field clinical studies to actually, uh, you know, go in and predict the risk and then take the actual health outcome data, the infection data, and feed it back to our model to train it and make it more and more predictive. Wow. Yeah. I'm even thinking about, you know, like an ER room or something. So many people kind of coming in and out and ambulances and all this, being able to kind of flag, you know, someone who's leading that hospital and being like, whoa, this room has had a lot of action and people running in here without masks and whatever it is to be able to stop that before, you know, it becomes overwhelmed. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, the premise of the, the idea is, uh, you know, there are a ton of applications for, for this model. Um, and, you know, one of many is, is that, you know, I think we can actually advance science and advance our understanding of the different types of activities that, that increase or decrease the risk of transmission. You know, for us, it's, it's all about understanding what causes risk and how to mitigate it so that our, our products that are installed within a physical space can, uh, can proactively mitigate risk and keep people safe. So we can actually understand like the precise moment that people are going, uh, that are likely to get sick and do something about it in real time. And the outcome will be, you know, healthier humans, more productivity and improving the quality of life for, for people in our, our natural habitat indoor spaces. Was it hard to prove the results? You know, you're a new company, you're coming in there saying we have this, you know, new technology you can install. 
It seems like it would be hard until you have maybe six months of data to be like, look, here's hospital A. They started using, you know, our devices and here's the outcome. But in the early days, if you don't have that data, what did that look like when you were, you know, trying to pitch your product to hospitals and hoping they would buy without, you know, having something that like doesn't have a tangible like, oh, look, see it disinfecting here. Now you're good. Like, how did you guys, you know, go about that? Great question. And and uh, the answer is, is multifaceted and, and somewhat complex, but there's a logical progression that, that you can kind of get to where people can wrap their heads around like, yes, this should ostensibly work. I'll use chemicals as, a, as an example or a baseline, but somebody walks, like if you pull the bottle of Lysol out from underneath your, your sink and you spray it on the surface, you can smell it. It smells like a chemical that's you know yeah. disinfecting something. Yeah, you're like that did something. <laughs> exactly, it's doing something in my nose and the respiratory yeah. system. Like it's got to be must be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you physically wipe the surface off, and mm-hmm. so it's not a huge leap of faith to understand that you know there's disinfection happening on that surface, and you know I'm physically wiping it off. Um, and so that's the you know, most basic example I would say. Um, now that doesn't mean that. It's correl- that action is correlated to health outcomes. That doesn't mean like you don't have a direct uh, way of saying like that that prevented a sick day for me, um, yep. prevented me from getting E. coli or, or the flu or whatever it may be. Um, it's, it's harder, if not impossible, to prove a negative, so to speak. But uh, so we have to build sort of this logical case to say like ostensibly this should do exactly what you're saying it does. So what we did early on was, um, you know, everything we do is, is rooted in science. And although we know UVC works beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, we had to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that our product specifically worked under the conditions that we're saying it works under. And so what we did was we sent our, our products. We do this with all of our product, but all of our products, but ARC uh, specifically, we sent it off to a third party lab in Bozeman, Montana, of all places. And we tested against live microorganisms with um, with the same ASTM standards that uh, chemical disinfectants are beholden to, and we tested under real world, world conditions. And so, um, you know, we tested against human coronavirus, E. coli, uh, MRSA, and feline calicivirus, which is the norovirus family. And we were able to prove under you know with a third party independent lab ASTM standards that you know that are our standard for the chemical industry. We were able to prove that our products in a single seven-minute cycle can eliminate over 99.99% of any of those uh, different pathogens. And so, you know, when we come to the table with customers in the early days, being able to explain to them, you know, UVC works and here's how, um, Mm -hmm. here's our proof that it works from a third-party lab. Don't take it from us, take it from, you know, a third-party lab using the same test methods that, you know, Lysol has to to go through in order to make that 99.9% claim on their bottle. And so, uh, so we've done that. Now, one of the hard parts is this, re- this industry is not really regulated at all. And so UBC manufacturers can kind of claim whatever they want to the detriment of consumers. So that's why if you go on Amazon, you see those like $5 UBC wands that are battery powered. They mm-hmm. say kills 99% of germs. If you look at the marketing language on those uh, closely, it's, it's disingenuous in that they are actually talking about like UVC claim, uh, kills this you know, percentage of germs, not our product, um, because they haven't tested it and they don't have to, uh, according to the current regulations. What makes a good one versus a bad one? Because to me, a light bulb is a light bulb. Like what makes, you know, their wand maybe not as good versus, you know, what you guys have? Yeah, so it's it works with the same principles as uh, as the sun and, and sunburns, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's really you're measuring like the dose that you're delivering to a specific 
surface or, or uh, you know, air or um, uh, microorganism really. But um, if you think about like uh, sunburns, like if you're out in the sun in Cabo in the middle in Mexico, in the middle of summer, if you're outside for 10, 15 minutes, you, you might get red and you might get a little bit of a sunburn. Contrast that with being out in the sun in Ireland uh, in the middle of winter for the same 10 or 15 minutes. Um, it's probably not as damaging because the sun's less intense. So mm-hmm. all doses is intensity times time. So the, the more intense the light is, the, the quicker you're able to disinfect and the higher efficacy you get effectively. And so yeah. the, those wands have really, really low UVC output, really, really low intensity. Um, but you know, our, our device was designed specifically to de- deliver like the maximum amount of UVC light to every surface and air particle in a, in a given room based on how much power you can pull out of a, a typical three-pronged outlet. So yeah. we, we literally, that was our constraint. We literally said, how much power can we pull out of a three-pronged outlet and, and how much of that can we translate into UVC energy in we, we did it. <laughs> so we, yeah. we've unequivocally created something. Yeah, exactly. That, that our, you know, our product puts out as much or more light uh, than any hospital grade product that's uh, on the market today, but we sell it for a fraction of the price. Got it. Okay. I love that. So can people be in the room when it's cleaning or is it like, okay, everyone's got to get out. We're going to turn this light bulb on. It's about to blast everything away and you can come back in. <laughs> So traditional UVC light in the UVC that our first product are creates, um, you cannot be in the room when it's running. So it'll give you, it'll irritate your skin if you're exposed for too long, or it'll make your eyes feel like you stared at the sun. You know, it's not going to kill you, but our, our stance is that nobody should be around it. And so, you know, we baked in redundant safety mechanisms and stuff to make sure that nobody is in the room. But, mm-hmm. you know, even though you can't be in the room, you can actually be productive while it's running. So for example, you know, if you're running a five minute cycle, you wheel it in, plug it in the wall, set a timer, hit go, you can go to the next room and start cleaning and operating in that room, which is one of the reasons our customers are seeing a, a pretty massive uh, decrease in, in, in labor uh, required to get the same or higher efficacy from our devices. However, we have new, a new product that's coming out very soon that you can be in the room while it's running. So traditionally, uh, UVC light is 254 nanometers, and that's you know, our first product that wavelength is harmful to human skin and eyes. So it has enough energy to penetrate the top layer. It can get to the live cells and cause um, disruption in the DNA and the RNA, just like it does with, with uh, microorganisms. But our new product, um, it's, it uses what's called far UV. So instead of 254 nanometers, it's now 222 nanometers. So it's a shorter wavelength of light and it does not have enough energy to penetrate the top layer of skin or a uh, top layer of um, cells in your eye. And therefore it is safe for uh, use in occupied rooms. And um, the implications of that are huge. So A, it does both surface and air disinfection um, in occupied rooms. But if you think about how air disinfection has been done historically, literally everything on the market right now, you physically have to move that air somewhere to be able to treat it. So whether that's a HEPA filter that you plugged in in the corner of your room or, um, or a vent uh, that takes that air and recirculates it through a filtration or disinfection mechanism in the central HVAC system, um, you physically have to move the air. So if you and I are engaged in conversation and I'm sick and I'm breathing out contaminated air, it can pass by your face, get you infected on its way to the HEPA filter that's behind you, for example. Mm-hmm. With far UV that's not the case. So as soon as the air comes out of my mouth, as soon as it's exposed to the light, this far UV light, it's actually being disinfected in real time. So by the time that air gets to you, 
the pathogenic load is lower and therefore the risk of infection is significantly lower. So um, I, I truly believe that we're going to look back on far UV in 25 years and consider it one of the most consequential medical advancements and discoveries um, of our lifetime. Wow. Well, that's awesome. I mean, okay. Idea, an outfit with the UV lights on. So then it just beams away any problems that try and come my way. <laughs> Thoughts? There Do you, you want to license it from me? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll put it on the road now. That's great. So I want to talk a bit about scale. I was listening to, you know, another show you were on. I know, I think you mentioned that like within six months, you scaled up to like $11 million or something. Are you able to share where you're at today and how you're thinking about employee growth with that? Yeah. So we, we've seen our business uh, accelerate coming out of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. um, today we're, we're nearly, uh, we're over 25 million in, in sales. Um, we've been selling for about 10 and a half months at this mm-hmm. point. And so it's been remarkable to see the, the adoption of these types of products. And, and what we're seeing is not only are, are um, and one of the reasons that's driving the acceleration coming out of COVID is not only are these businesses investing in you know, uh, COVID response tools and, and tools to fight COVID, but they see the long-term benefit and they understand that they have to do something differentiated to get employees back in the door, to get guests to feel safe coming back into their business and things like that. So they're making the investment in the long-term and, and sort of reimagining uh, their physical spaces and, and designing them around with sort of um, human health and productivity at their core. Um, and that's, I think, why we're, why we're seeing... Um, the rapid adoption and the acceleration coming out of COVID. But as it relates to employee growth, um, you know, right now, the way we look at this business is we're, we're really inventing a market right now. And the speed at which we move is going to have a huge impact on our long-term success. And so we're scaling as fast as humanly possible to, you know, to bring more products to market, to proliferate our products into more and more spaces um, and to, uh, you know, to you know, accelerate our rate of progress as a company uh, and be really the first early movers in, in this industry and establish ourselves as, as uh, the experts. Wow. So what are some lessons you've learned, you know, while scaling this quickly where you're like, Oh, I would have maybe done that a little differently, or now I know that for next time. The biggest thing for me has been that the people you bring on matter a ton. Um, and, you know, that seems obvious when you say it out loud, but you know, this being my third business um, it, it's, it's really sunk in and it's really like this, this business is different in that, you know, the people that we have involved are incredibly talented, incredibly smart, they're driven, they're competitors, and they're all motivated by the mission. And so just making sure that you get your, your, your core uh, of employees, your early employees really, really right. Um, it, it affords you a lot of flexibility um, and it allows you to, to stay like really low touch, low process, low overhead, you know, for as long as you possibly can. One of the things that I think has been challenging and will always be challenging, and I think it's probably a, a problem many, many businesses are, are, are uh, trying to solve right now, is creating the connective tissue between the team in a fully remote environment. Yep. And I think a lot of people have operated in fully remote environments, but most people, I would guess, have not. So we've had to be very, very intentional about getting employees to know that each other exists, um, forming those bonds. So they feel, um, not just, you know, compelled to work with each other, but they, they know who does what and who to go to for what. And we've had to do, we've like iterated on a lot of different ideas and, um, a couple that have worked really well, I think are one it's, it's super simple, but it's hugely impactful, but we do a thing called random coffees. It's just a Slack plugin that on Monday, 
randomly matches two people, pairs people up within the company. And on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, we have uh, a 30 minute time slot that every it's on everybody in the company's calendar and we hold that sacred. And for that 30 minutes, everybody in the company is meeting somebody else and having like a random coffee. And we encourage okay. people to talk about anything other than work um, just to get to know each other a little bit. But um, it's been incredibly powerful to, to just have that interaction with people and kind of recreate that, that water cooler talk that you miss, um, you know, being remote, um, recreate that water cooler talk in a very intentional way and, and help people, you know, uh, uh, form those connections and bonds. But yeah, we're, you know, we've had to do things like that for, for culture, but then also be very intentional and, and thoughtful about the communication channels, the feedback loops, um, and, and how to manage change, uh, as we scale. And, um, you know, we're not perfect, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting better every day. And, and, uh, it's, it's something that I think is going to be a huge challenge for a lot of businesses and the ones that do it well, I think we'll have a distinct competitive advantage moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And you're scaling up to like, you know, hundred people. So that's within like a year or so. How do you go about kind of setting up teams so that people can kind of act on your behalf and hire and vet? Because I'm imagining if you're scaling this quick and you've got a ton of things to do, you probably, you know, are not dropping in on every single interview and having those abilities. So how do you think about, you know, setting up a team to be able to kind of work on your behalf? Yeah. So, I mean, it takes a lot of trust and in, in order to trust, you have to hire phenomenal people. And we did that early on. And, um, you know, my, my leadership team is uh, like the, the best I've ever been around, especially for a company at our stage. They're truly special. And I have to pinch myself every morning when I wake up and remind myself like, holy smokes, like look at this team of people we have. But, um, you know, when you hire highly capable people and, and you get to see them go through a couple of reps and see that they have great judgment, that they can recruit, recruit top talent, that they know what they're doing, you have to let them run. You can't be the bottleneck. Um, with that said, I do interview every single person that gets an offer. So I'm the wow, last okay. line, of, line of defense. And it's usually a very quick interview, um, uh, like a 30 minute interview. I get candidates that we have intentions in making offers for. And, and I've had to have a, uh, tough conversations about you know these people not being the right fit and kind of turning them down at the end of the interview process. Um, but I think that that has been critically important to make sure that we have consistent sort of DNA throughout the, throughout the company as we go. And, and, you know, we, we look for people that are going to be autonomous, that are going to be able to make good decisions and, and good and have good judgment in the absence of, of, you know, complete and perfect information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that has been uh, really challenging. It's really like, especially in today's job market, it's incredibly hard to find great people, but um, if you get it right, uh, it allows you to, again, just be, be a little bit more trusting, more hands-off and, and, and the team has to, uh, you know, the team has to kind of figure it all out together and, and people will self-organize and, and make good decisions and, and whatnot. And along with that is, you know, as we've gone through multiple phases where early on, like I knew everything that was going on in the business, um, mm-hmm. when, especially when it's three founders up to, yeah. I don't know, I'd say probably 20 to 30 people you can have a handle on all of the different activities because there's only so much we can do as a company. But once you scale past that, it, it is pretty impossible to know what's going on. And so, you know, I've had to evolve um, as a leader to, to be more, um, you know, provide more, more of a framework, more direction, more, you know, make sure we set our North Star really clearly and, and come up with a, a set of sort of principles and values by which we operate. And if that framework is done really, really right, 
then you know it it will automatically get people aligned and pulling in the same direction. But you know it'll be a constant iterative process to make sure that we have the right information getting disseminated uh, down throughout the team, and we're pushing the decision making closer to the people that are doing the work and and you know improving increased context, increased autonomy, and and decreased process and uh, red tape. I guess. Yeah, and it seems like you know the people closer, like you know, to the ground floor where they're kind of listening to the customers, they might actually have good product ideas too of like, oh, we've been to like 20 different hospitals that are all mentioning that they want this. How do you all think about, you know, new product conception and figuring out what the market needs? This old Steve Jobs adage is, is very true, but like customers um, don't know what they need uh, a yeah. lot of the times. And I don't mean that in any disparaging way whatsoever. It's just that what we're doing is scientific and it's new. And so you have facilities managers now who are not only expected to be operational experts, but now they are expected to be epidemiologists as well. And so, you know, you, you get a lot of, you know, feature asks or, or product asks, um, and you have to get to the why behind them. You know, why are you asking that? What do you think you're going to achieve? What value does that add to you? Because um, there might be a better way to do it. And so um, we've had to build really tight feedback loops. So for example, our uh, customer success team who does our onboarding and training with all of our customers, and they're probably the closest to our customers, they send a weekly uh, update uh, every week to the entire company. And they talk about you know, the different customers we onboarded, different insights that we learned about like how they're using the product and maybe in a novel way, what value they're getting out of it, um, and any sort of like issues that may have come up um, that we might want to try to address or feature asks or, or uh, feature additions. So building those feedback loops has been critical. Um, you know, sales and marketing have an, another really tight feedback loop as well. But you know, it's all about institutionalizing that framework, that thinking, that line of thinking where, like, hey, every interaction we get with a customer, let's use it to learn something new about who they are, how they operate, what what's valuable to them, and then let's make sure to disseminate that information in a structured, organized, and and uh, pragmatic way. Uh, throughout the organization. And then, you know, our product managers are incredible and they they do a really good job of ingesting and organizing all of that information, prioritizing it and figuring out what um, what we want to do with it. It's a process. What is one of the craziest things that a customer has asked for? Or just a random person like me who wants an outfit that's UV? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. I've seen some pretty pretty audacious asks. I think what like on the more like realistic or practical side, I'd say... Um, People have asked for like off-road tires for for our first product, and um, it's funny they you know one of our first ever customer installations was at like a dude ranch in uh, basically on the central coast of California. They didn't have any pavement or anything, so we were wheeling around this device. It's meant to be wheeled around in like a school or an office building or whatever, which is it's very mobile. Um, yeah. But you know, wheeling it around on giant rocks, like you know, rock walkways and stuff. It was. Uh, it was interesting, and that would have been a good uh, use case for for those wheels. But um, and then we've gotten requests for like lasers, which I think some of them have been like tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah. But it actually is something that that may be viable. Where you know, if you understand somebody touched uh, like a door handle or whatever, you have mm -hmm. a laser that can actually like like target a beam of UVC disinfection disinfecting light uh, at that high touch surface or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's been there's been some some funny ones. So how do you guys think about, you know, eventually we will be in a post-COVID world. How do you think about the marketing and sales strategy? I'm assuming it could adjust a little bit when people are like, shoo, okay, we're past that now. 
We don't have to worry as much. Let's go on with business. I mean, some people might stay, you know, where they are now. And, you know, I think there's a lot of new habits that are forming, but there might be a little bit of a pullback too, where people are like, okay, let's just go back to how it was. How do you all think about, you know, maybe adjusting the messaging, you know, after we're not in the COVID frenzy anymore? So we haven't been selling against COVID for a, for a number of months now. Um, really, when the vaccines came out, that's when mm-hmm. um, we, we we did see somewhat of a pullback in terms of like the, the receptivity of like COVID of customers to COVID messaging. And I think part of that, like, I, I mean, I'm a consumer as well. Like, and we're all we're all in this boat together. And, you know, back in April, when vaccines came out, I wanted it all to end too. Like, I, I was like, okay, vaccines are here. Let's go. <laughs> we're done. But what we're seeing is, you know, people are becoming aware, more aware than ever societally and um, from an organizational standpoint, more aware than ever about the impact of indoor environments on our overall health. And really with any type of an organization, whether it's a business or a school or anything in between, um, there's a material ROI to keeping people healthy. And so, you know, that material ROI in schools, for example, um, schools get their funding from students attending school. And, uh, you know, one of the school districts we're working with right now, um, they get $47 a day in funding, um, uh, in state funding every day that a student attends school. Um, the year before COVID, they missed, they missed out on over $75 million worth of wow. funding due to sick days and student absenteeism. And then you layer on top of that, um, teacher sick days, um, you know, cost about $190 a day for that school to hire a substitute teacher. Um, and they paid over $22 million that same year in uh, substitute teacher uh, costs. And so, you know, almost $100 million a year of annual opportunity. Um, and that's not to mention the, the sort of like tangential benefits to students being in school. So when students attend school and when teachers attend school, the quality of learning goes up and that impacts standardized test scores, which also impact funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this, this sort of cyclical process. And then if you think about an organization, especially companies that are like knowledge workers, you know, these companies have spent, some of them um, are spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars to make their building more energy efficient and get like a lead certification, for example. And energy is, uh, energy con- consumption might be five to 7% of a company's overall spend. But, you know, what is 80, 90 plus percent of a company's overall spend is headcount, it's people. So if you can get, you know, they're, they're paying tens of millions of dollars to cut five to 7% of their spend in half, where if you can, optimize the 80, 90% of your spend that is headcount and get, you know, five, 10% more productivity out of your most expensive asset. That's a much bigger lever. And that's not to mention the health insurance costs that are associated with it. So most large companies over 2,500 to 3,000 employees, it makes all the sense in the world to underwrite your own health insurance plans. And when companies do that, it costs them about $22,000 per year per employee on average. And that cost is, is rising seven to 9% per year. And so um, for the same reasons that, you know, a company might give a gym stipend to their employees, not because they uh, like fit employees, but because fit employees are healthy employees, healthy employees cost less to insure. Um, for the same reason that companies do that, um, we can also come in and become a cost savings mechanism by virtue of keeping people healthy, reducing their direct and indirect healthcare related costs, and therefore reducing their, their healthcare and health insurance premiums as well. So I think companies are realizing that this is possible. You know, I, I remember reading my first article about this actually almost exactly a year ago. I was reading an article about South Africa, who is just coming out of their flu season. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically they report about a million cases of the flu. 
every year. And this past year, they reported one, one single case of the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the basic precautions they were taking for COVID were, you know, enough to all but eradicate the flu. We saw the same effect in the United States. The CDC showed that uh, flu cases uh, in the United States were down more than 99%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think people are having the realization that, look, your facilities manager or the person who makes decisions about the, the spaces where we spend our time has a greater overall impact on our health than our doctor does. Yep. And they're also realizing that like there are huge benefits, not only physical benefits to keeping people in the seat and being more productive by virtue of keeping them healthier, but there's also the psychological benefits as well. And I truly believe that consumers are going to change their behavior based on you know health and safety. And um, so, you know, imagine like going to TripAdvisor, planning a, a, a trip uh, for you and your family and seeing, you know, there's 10 hotels listed and some of them have, you know, an R0 badge next to them mm-hmm. indicating that they've actually, uh, that they employ hospital grade disinfection. Like I would personally pay five to 10 extra dollars a yeah. night to stay at a place like that, knowing that my risk of infection was less. So I think that's how like the world has changed forever. Um, and I think it, it centers around that human health, that awareness of the relationship between indoor spaces and, and our, uh, our overall health. I love it. My one last question around this and getting kind of sciencey and less commercey, but like, is, is it true that something can be like too clean? Like you read about, you know, environments not having enough things in it for kids to get sick like they used to in the dirt and, you know, everything's just like wiped down all the time and like you should actually have viruses around and stuff. I'm thinking about, you know, if you someone were to install this in their house, is that a good thing or does it make the environment too clean where it's maybe preventing what should happen, especially to like kids in the early days? Yeah, I think um, that's like the ultimate extreme. We hear that all the time, but that's the ultimate extreme. That's like if everything was sterile. And the reality is like your body is exposed to pathogens or other sorts of, you know, mold or fungi or things that like stress your immune system all Mm -hmm. the time. But that doesn't mean you get sick. And so, you know, that's conceptually similar to to like a vaccine where you have, you know, a, a small enough dose of a particular pathogen that your body's immune system can naturally uh, overcome it and, and create antibodies for it so that the next time you're exposed to it, uh, it doesn't you know, take over and, uh, and get you actually sick. And so it's kind of like um, your immune system is, is kind of like, and this is a very crude analogy, but kind of like uh, a muscle. If you work it out, um, it's, it's ready to go. And, and that's the concept behind like, you know, kids rolling around in the dirt yep. um, to stay healthy. Um, so I think that, you know, what we're doing is lowering the risk. We're not completely eliminating everything. We're not like sterilizing things. And um, ostensibly we could, um, but uh, that's not necessary. It's not practical and it's not necessary. And so our goal is just get the pathogenic load below the, the infection threshold. So um, even in environments where we are drastically reducing or even eliminating altogether sick days, um, people are still exposed to things all the time in that environment, just not enough to get them sick. And then you, if you think about outside of that environment, you know, extrapolate this idea, like in order for, for people to be completely like unexposed to, to pathogens, every environment that you go to has to be fully sterile which is not practical. So like your grocery store, your children's school, your, the line that the, you know, at the bank that you wait in, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the gas station, like, you know, if you're, if you're taking that analogy all the way to its extreme, like, yes, I think that would probably be a bad thing, but we're definitely not 
anywhere close to that as a society. And then, you know, our, our products do enough to keep people safe, but, but not enough to like make sure that the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Their, yeah. their, their immune system still getting a workout from plenty of different places. Got it. All right. A quick lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have 30 seconds or less to answer. Are you ready, Grant? Ready. All right. What's one thing you don't understand today that you wish you did? I don't understand why traffic happens for no reason when there's no accident or, or anything. Why people just slow down on the road. Um, why we that should be your just... next company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that are like just autonomous drones that yeah. can transport people and don't have to deal with traffic. But Yep, that is very confusing. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Music. I, I am a musician by passion, I guess. I almost went to music school. My first guest on the podcast would probably be Carter Beaufort, who's the, the drummer for Dave Matthews Band. Um, okay. uh, I'm a huge Dave Matthews Band fanboy. I'm a drummer myself. And I love, uh, I grew up you know, trying to emulate everything that he did. So, uh, and plus he's just a, he seems like a really cool guy. So I'd love to have him on the podcast. That's great. You need to do a custom little drum intro for us. Make it really unique. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's up next on your reading list or podcast, whatever you prefer? On my reading list, there's a book called The Premonition. It's about the the, the CDC and, and uh, the history of the CDC. It explains a little bit about how they've handled past pandemics and public policy and things like that. And uh, my, one of my co-founders, Ben, read it and uh, highly rec uh, recommended it to me. So that's, uh, that's on the list. Okay. I kind of want to check it out. If it has a nice future or a scary one, you'll have to <laughs> give, me a, give me a warning. <laughs> All right. And the last thing, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh man. Um, my, like my, my parents putting up with me growing up, I was, uh, I was one of those kids that was described as having like a lot of energy, mm -hmm. which we all know I was very, which just means like I, I was difficult, um, as a, as a kid, but my parents always, they recognized at an early age that they're like, Grant's going to do his own thing no matter what. And they, they supported me. They loved me and they, they set me up to, you know, uh, to be where I am today. But um, I remember when I started my first company, I was leaving the healthcare industry, big cushy job at a, in the healthcare industry, using the degree that I actually got, um, left to do a startup. And I remember my mom was like, oh, I'm proud of you, but you know, I, I haven't changed your room. So like, if something happens, you know, you always have a place to come home to and, and stay with us. I was like, thanks for the belief in me, mom, but, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it all worked out. Yeah. That's a mom though. I, I uh, definitely have heard similar things. That's great. All right, Grant. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm glad we got to make this work. Where can people find more about you and R0 Systems? Check us out on the web at r0.com. That's R-Z-E-R-O.com. And drop us a note if you're interested in seeing what it would look like to get hospital grade biosafety technology into your into your physical space and, and really establish a new standard for, for health and safety. Love it. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.